to The People's Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. And welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast. I am very excited for all of us to become more knowledgeable on today's topic, and that is the very hot trend of bone broth. Okay, so we're going to start off the topic of bone broth by first doing a YouTube search on it. So let's see what we find. Now, a bunch of videos are showing up, and here are some of the titles of the videos. Just one glass of bone broth per day can change your life. Why bone broth is liquid gold. Gut healing superfood. 60-hour bone broth fast results. See, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast. There are very strong influencers on social media that are making elaborate health claims on what information? Because I tell you, when I try and find evidence to support these claims being made about bone broth, it's not there. So in this episode, I will tell you the facts about bone broth. Are the claims substantiated? And if not, what are some proven ways to improve our health? So for anyone that doesn't know about bone broth, essentially it is made by boiling animal bones for several hours in water, which produces this gelatinous type of broth, similar to jello, which can also be produced from the collagen and bones of animals. Now, some of the most popular health claims being made about bone broth include improved bone health, improved joint health and pain, enhanced gut health, improved immune function, and enhanced skin. I think the reason why some people started making these claims about bone broth is because of the research coming out on collagen peptides. Now, bones are very high in collagen, and so it could be thought that bone broth is a good source of collagen. But let me make a very clear distinction here. The clinical trials coming out that looked at the health benefits of collagen supplements are based on hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplements, which is very different from bone broth. Hydrolyzed collagen peptides are tiny peptides that can escape the digestion of our intestines and can therefore enter into our circulation and, for example, be stored in our joints where it may be needed. Last year in the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism, Alcock and their colleagues analyzed the peptide content of both commercially made store-bought broth and a variety of recipes for for homemade bone broth. In the end, the authors concluded that bone broth was unlikely to provide reliable sources of amino acids and peptides. The concentrations of the peptides were low and highly variable. So if people were drinking bone broth in the hopes of consuming adequate amounts of hydrolyzed collagen peptides, this likely is not the case. Now, despite bone broth not being a good source of hydrolyzed collagen peptides, I find the data coming out on these collagen supplements to be very interesting. Now, these hydrolyzed collagen supplements are typically derived from the animal skin or hide through the process of hydrolysis and typically do not come from animal bones. Now, in order for us to understand why people started looking at collagen supplements, I'm going to talk a little bit about collagen and what it does for our body. 
Collagen is the main structural protein in our bodies, and with aging, the ability to produce collagen deteriorates. Therefore, there has been some extensive research looking at the consumption of collagen peptides and their ability to enter our circulation and be stored where they may be needed, such as in our joints and skin. Yazaki and colleagues back in 2017 published that a hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplement resulted in an increase in functional peptides in the skin. And another report showed that peptides can also travel to the joints and be stored there as well. As a result, some scientists hypothesize that increasing collagen deposition in the skin and joints can aid in skin and joint health, particularly in those of older age. So some clinical trials have in fact looked at skin health and joint health with these supplements. Now, the first couple of studies looked at supplementation and skin health. Now, the couple of studies that I found did not look just at hydrolyzed collagen supplements, but they also combined it with hyaluronic acid and vitamins and minerals. But in this one clinical trial, they had looked at hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplementation and the vitamin, minerals, and hyaluronic acid for 12 weeks. And they found significant improvements in facial skin elasticity and collagen density. But the authors do note that these trials need to be followed up with better designed and controlled studies. We also can't discount the fact that the other components in their supplement, such as the hyaluronic acid and vitamins and minerals, may have also had a contributing effect to the skin health. Now, how about joint health? There was one paper published by Girma and colleagues back in 2012 in the journal Osteoporosis International. And they had reported that in female mice that were mimicking menopause, when bone mass loss happens most in women, when they added a hydrolyzed collagen peptide to the diet of these female mice, it decreased their bone mass loss and actually had an increase in bone mineral density after 26 weeks of consuming the hydrolyzed collagen peptide. But do keep in mind that this was an animal study conducted in mice. So how about some clinical data? Now, there are some clinical trials that support hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplementation and that it can, in fact, reduce symptoms of joint pain, particularly in those with osteoarthritis. Now, another paper that was published by Clark et al. had looked at a randomized controlled clinical trial with 24 weeks of hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplementation in young, healthy adults around 20 years old. And they had noted that it did in fact reduce joint pain as assessed by the physician and the patients themselves. Now, in regard to the health claims being made about gut health, I have yet to find any strong scientific literature supporting bone broth or hydrolyzed collagen peptides for intestinal health. If anything, I would actually be wary of collagen supplementation if someone is diagnosed with Crohn's or colitis as these two inflammatory bowel conditions are hallmarked by fibrotic lesions, which are made up of collagen. So it is certainly possible that if someone's eating collagen, perhaps there is being more collagen deposited in those fibrotic lesions, but there is no evidence to support that. It's just a hypothesis I'm making based on the knowledge of physiology in these conditions. So it is possible that taking a collagen supplement can actually worsen these inflammatory bowel conditions. So I would be cautious. So in summary of the first part of this podcast, yes, there is some strong evidence to support that hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplementation can enhance both skin and joint health. However, the claims being made about bone broth are not substantiated with scientific evidence. 
Now, before I jump into the second part of this episode, I just want to make a very brief disclaimer. And that is I have to apologize because I personally feel I can never give a recommendation on supplements to my listeners. And I will never receive sponsorship for supplements because I need to remain unbiased and I can't have any conflict of interest as a researcher or as your host for this podcast. And that's part of the reason why I'm hoping to be your trusted source, because I want you to know that I'll never speak about a supplement or a diet because of sponsorship. I don't want that to ever be an issue for my listeners. And so as a result, when I'm talking about supplements or diets, I want you to know that I'm talking about them because I find them interesting. And because there is scientific evidence out there, or because it's a trend that I feel we need to know the truth about. So if you're wondering about the supplements and if I can provide recommendations, I'm sorry, but that's something I'll never do. My job is just to give you the scientific evidence that is out there, and then it is up to you with what you want to do that information. I hope you're all okay with that, but in my opinion, that's the way that I can stay unbiased and a good source of information for all of you. So with that being said, let's jump into the second part of this episode. The main reason I wanted to bring up bone broth today is because bone broth contains some compounds that are very dangerous and harmful to us. And that includes heavy metals, antibiotic products, and environmental contaminants. Physiologically, when we or animals are exposed to environmental contaminants, what does not become secreted in the urine or feces is sequestered to our fat storage or bones. That is the body's way of trying to put away toxins that can be harmful to us. Now, the older we or animals become, the more the heavy metals and toxins build up. As a result, in my opinion, this is the strongest argument for vegetarianism, thus avoiding the bioaccumulation of toxins that are present in animals. But that will be a a topic to be covered in the near future. Right now, let's talk specifically about bones and what can be present in bone broth. Grote and colleagues in 2004 published a paper investigating the level of antibiotics and its breakdown products in pigs two weeks following antibiotic intake. They noted that detectable levels of antibiotic breakdown products were found in the muscle, liver, and kidney, but extremely high levels of 22 milligrams per kilogram were noted in the bones. They were the highest source of these antibiotic products. Akin and colleagues in 2009 published that the bones are the second highest concentration of pesticides found, with the liver being the highest, following pesticide exposure. Liu had published back in 1995 a summary of the ill effects of these metabolites of antibiotics and pesticides and their health consequences if we are regularly exposed to them. And those include gastrointestinal disease, immune suppression, bone degradation, and acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, which can impede normal neurotransmission and function of the brain. Now let's jump into the heavy metal concern. Heavy metals, including lead, mercury, and cadmium, have very serious health consequences. They are linked to an increased risk of high blood pressure, memory problems, anemia, learning disabilities, gastrointestinal issues, irritability, psychiatric disorders, and many more complications. The brain is the most sensitive to lead poisoning because lead causes toxicity to the neurons in our brain. And children are the most sensitive to the effects of heavy metal exposure. 
So you may be wondering, there could be heavy metals in the bones, but it doesn't make its way into the bone broth. Well, I'm not the first person to have realized this concern, as two other groups have analyzed the heavy metal content of both store-bought and homemade bone broth. Now, Monroe et al. actually back in 2013 had conducted a very simple study where they had looked at the lead concentrations in different organic chicken bone broths. And they had shown quite high concentrations ranging from 2.3 to 9.5 micrograms of lead per liter of bone broth. But there was another report that showed the same thing. And this paper was published by Sue et al. last year in Food Nutrition Research. Now, this paper had extensive methodology, looking at a wide variety of preparations for animal bone broth, looking at different animal sources, different types of bones, different cooking times and temperatures, the addition of vinegar or not, etc. And they had analyzed the mineral content and heavy metal concentrations in the animal bone broth. And they had shown that there were lead concentrations ranging from 5.2 to 7.9 micrograms on average per kilogram of animal bone used. Not to mention that there were much higher concentrations observed as well. Now, the methodology in this paper is excellent, but what really bothered me about the paper is the conclusion they made. They concluded saying that because there's only a few micrograms of lead per serving in the bone broth, that it is not likely to cause any health consequences. As the WHO had made a statement before, that about 25 micrograms of lead per kilogram of body weight could be consumed per week. But what really bothers me about this conclusion is that the authors made this conclusion based on an outdated statement made by the WHO. The WHO made this statement back in the early 1990s and only a few years later, they had withdrawn this statement because they had said that they had seen very negative health consequences and much, much lower exposures of lead. And as a result, they had to withdraw their statement and could not make another recommendation because they had no known safe level of lead exposure. Yet for some reason, Sue and colleagues are still reporting an outdated recommendation on lead exposure. And I have no idea why they would have done that. Perhaps they didn't know, or perhaps they wanted to make the conclusion that bone broth was safe to consume. But in fact, it's not because the only organization I could find that could make a recommendation on lead was the Food and Drug Administration. And they have a statement saying that we should not exceed six micrograms of lead per day from food sources. Now, let me remind you that the concentrations that were found in the bone broth by Monroe and Sue et al. exceeded six micrograms per serving. Not to mention that some people may be consuming more than 130 grams of bone broth every day, and that there are very small concentrations of lead and other sources throughout our food and tap water, for example, that can add up throughout the day. Now, a very good question was brought up when I first did a YouTube video on this topic, and that was, what about the societies or countries that have consumed animal bone broth for centuries or on a regular basis? Now, I just want to say first off that just because a society has consumed something for a while does not necessarily make it safe to consume. Because let me remind you that hypertension or high blood pressure, reduced kidney function, neuron toxicity, brain damage, reduced cognitive function, dementia, and more has also been around for many centuries. And just because a food source has been consumed for a while does not mean that it does not have any negative health consequences. But again, I'm not the only one to think this. There are other reports to support this. As some of those countries where it is very popular to consume bone broth, such as pho in Vietnam, 
These countries actually have some of the highest concentrations of lead in their blood, particularly in children. There was a report that was published by Clune et al. that had mapped the global burden of lead poisoning, particularly in children. And they had shown that there were very high lead concentrations, particularly in South and Central America, Southeast Asia, and India. There are other reports also showing that there are very high blood lead concentrations in Vietnam, as well as in the Philippines. Now, it is clear that in these environments, there can be much higher levels of lead than, for example, in some parts of North America. And it could be primarily because leaded gasoline, for example, was outlawed much later in these countries than they were in North America. Or some communities can be very close to battery recycling facilities where there are higher concentrations of lead. So I'm not saying that the reason why these countries have higher blood lead concentrations is because of animal bone broth, but I'm saying it could be a contributing factor. And obviously there are higher concentrations of lead in their environment, meaning that the animals are exposed to higher lead, meaning that the people are exposed to higher lead, and the animal bones can be one of those sources. So again, if my recommendation is that if people are going to consume bone broth, they're putting themselves at risk for being exposed to heavy metals and environmental contaminants. And globally, we should try our best to avoid sources of heavy metals as we know the consequences are so severe. Because the negative consequences of consuming these contaminants far outweigh any potential benefit of bone broth. So in brief summary, People have made broad claims about bone broth, of which none are backed up by science. Now, there is some solid science to support hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplements for skin and joint health. If you happen to add this supplement to your regular routine, please do make sure it is not derived from animal bones. But bone broth is not a good or reliable source of those hydrolyzed collagen peptides like some people may think. Even if bone broth happens to be a good source of these peptides, the fact that bones and bone broth contain antibiotic metabolites, pesticides, and heavy metals is a strong enough reason to warn against consuming it. In particular, children who are most sensitive to these effects of the contaminants should avoid bone broth at all costs. And please do not be fooled that grass-fed or organic bone broth means it is automatically safe as that one study by Monroe and colleagues showed that organic bone broth still had very high levels of mercury. So I hope that this podcast episode was very informative for all of you. Now that I've given you all the information, it's up to you to make those changes to your lifestyle. And remember, let's all keep in mind that we only have one body and that we should take the best care of it as possible so that we can live the healthy and fun lives that we want to live. I'm going to do my part and share as much scientific evidence with all of you. I hope you all have a super healthy week and make sure to tune in next week on The People Scientist. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.